Please stand for the reading of today's Old Testament lesson from the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verses 17 through 21. The highway of the upright avoids evil. Those who guard their way preserve their lives. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit among the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Those who are attentive to a matter will prosper, and happy are those who trust in the Lord. The wise of heart is called perceptive, and pleasant speech increases persuasiveness. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Sharon, for reading our lesson. Thank you, Toy, for guiding us in prayer. Uh, Toy is learning to pray. Uh, and uh, I always feel like when I hear her pray that she knows the one that she's praying to and appeals for all of us and always grateful for, for Toy and for Shannon and for all of you. We have some, some really special people with us today. In fact, we've got a whole North Georgia row right back here about midways. Uh, my favorite mother-in-law is here today with us, uh, Sherry's mother and dad. Sherry's an only child, if you didn't know. So um, we welcome them, Guy and Jeannie Huffman, and next to them, Jones Webb and Jane Eikenberry, dear friends of ours from Lawrenceville, Georgia. And Jones and Jane, it's so good to see you. We look forward to our fellowship afterwards, and it's a, a great joy to share this worship time uh, with each of you. Uh, if you're visiting with us today, you've caught us on the back nine. We, we've made the turn. We're on the second half of this series that we started five weeks ago. Uh, we're working our way through the book of Proverbs, one of the books that we call a part of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament canon. There are three that are a part of that, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And so we're thinking together along the theme of wise up, the context that we've laid is that we live in what we often call the age of information or the age of information overload, where at any given moment, including in this moment, we have massive amounts of data at our fingertips on our iPhones on our iPads and iPods, we have all kinds of data, and yet we seem in 2019 to have a dearth of wisdom. We have all of this information, but we seem to have very little wisdom. The Hebrew word, of course, is hakma, which literally means prudence or discretion. It can mean skill. It can mean insight and discernment. 31 chapters containing these little maxims, 8 to 14 words each, what we think of as these nutshells of knowledge, or sometimes I refer to them as fossils of theological truth that literally have hundreds of years uh, in them in the making of these Proverbs that were authored or at least authorized by King Solomon, son of David, who was the third and last king of the United Kingdom of Israel. Solomon's name is a derivative of the word shalom, which means peace. But for us today, particularly in lieu of the wisdom literature, it's a synonym, isn't it, for wisdom. Solomon and his wisdom. 
So if you're with us today for the first time, let me just catch you up and bring you up to snuff before we go forward. To date, we've been looking at the correlation between wisdom and reverence. Wisdom begins with fear of the Lord. You remember that, reverence for God. We've talked about the fact that there is a correlation between wisdom and trust. Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord or lean on God with all your heart and don't just rely on your own perspective. We've talked about the correlation of wisdom and work. Work is not a curse. Our work ethic is a gift of God. As early as Genesis 2, the honeymooners in the garden were given hands to work, to plow, to cultivate. And then we talked about the correlation of wisdom and discipline or self-control. Last week, we talked about the correlation of wisdom and speech. It is true, most of the Hebrew teachers thought the litmus test for wisdom is the way you talk to one another or of one another. And not, not just substance, not just what you say, remember, but how you say it. And so it's not just verbal, it's nonverbal, it's body language. Next week, I'm going to talk about the correlation between wisdom and humor. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine. But today, I want us to think for just a few minutes about the connection between wisdom and humility. That's an important word, humility. One of the tools that was used in ancient days by Hebrew sages was a teaching device. It's a big word called antithetical parallelism. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but it's not rocket science. Let me explain it. Antithetical parallelism is the contrasting of two opposing ideas in the same sentence. It's what we would call a thesis and an antithesis or an antithesis. And so what teachers still often do is they will juxtapose two things in order to reinforce some cognitive truth. In Proverbs, the writer juxtaposes reverence with irreverence, juxtaposes work with laziness, trust with a lack of trust, discipline with anarchy, speech with profanity, and all of that is very helpful. In fact, teachers still use it because haven't you discovered you can learn as much from the antithesis as you do the thesis. I've discovered that you can learn as much from one who is unwise as you can one who is wise. You can learn, maybe, at least I have learned more from my failures than I have my successes. And who among us in this room hasn't gotten a diploma from the school of hard knocks? probably every one of us in some way. I don't know about you, but I've discovered that I am most teachable when I have failed. I get the best education, or at least the best possible moment for education in the context of humiliation. And in 37 years, I've gotten educated. I can just tell you that. Richard Rohr, who's one of my favorite writers, he's written The Naked Now, Falling Forward. Some of you have read his material. He's a Franciscan monk 
I went to his retreat one weekend a few years ago, and several of our men went with me, and he said, and I quote, every day I pray for one humiliation from God so that I can remain humble. And I thought to myself, I've never really had to ask. I've never once had to pray for it. I'm just, I guess I'm just blessed in that way. I don't know. But here again in chapter 16, this tool is employed. Thesis, antithesis. Except in this text, what's interesting is the writer begins with the antithesis. Pride goes before a fall. You've heard that all your life, haven't you? Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And then, and only then, the thesis, better to be humble along with the oppressed than to share the spoil of the proud. Now, it's interesting when you read the rest of Proverbs that there's a ton of material that says similar things from that verse. I want to give you just a few. Proverbs 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 18:12. Before a downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Here's one that's kind of graphic, I warn you. Proverbs 26, verse 11. As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. And then 29, verse 23, a person's pride will bring humiliation, but one who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Now, I want to talk for a moment about the antithesis and then the thesis. One of the seven deadly sins that was coined by Pope Gregory the Great in the 6th century A.D., one of the lead seven deadly sins is this issue of pride. The ancient Israelites saw pride as as a pagan behavior, as a behavior of those who did not believe in the one true God. Indeed, the Hebrews saw pride as a declaration of independence from God, or maybe even as a warring or a competing against God. When you think about it, in the garden story, the Garden of Eden, it was pride that did the trick. It was pride that led Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. More than anything else, it was their desire to be like God or to take the place of God that led to sin, that leads to our sin and to the fall. One of our Saturday night worshipers who is an usher on Saturday evenings came to me last week and he said something that was interesting. He said, Davis, I've figured out the difference between me and God. And I said, what is it? He said, God has never wanted to be me. (laughs) That's interesting. In the Hebrew language, the word for pride literally, get this, means high-spirited or high-minded. That word haughty, Sharon, that you read a moment ago for us is similar. It means to be high-minded. It's interesting the phrase, that word haughty, plays into our phrase, have you heard this, hoity-toity. I can assure you that people sometimes think folks on this side of Old Hickory in that regard, sometimes hoity-toity. Someone asked me the other day, 
If Brentwood United Methodist Church were an animal, what would it be? And I thought about it and I said, it would be a dog and then I created a species. I said, it would be a blue tick poodle. (laughs) They said, explain. I said, well, we've got to touch a class, but we're just running every which way. (laughs) Here's another word maybe you haven't heard. Highfalutin. You know that word? Did you know that's a word? It's in the dictionary. My mother-in-law is an English teacher. She confirmed it. It's an over-exaggerated sense of self. It's an inflated ego. Sometimes when we overvalue ourself, I've noticed that we wind up devaluing other people. Pride. When I think of pride, I, I, I think of the image of a blowfish. Do you know that creature, a blowfish, also called the puffer fish? It's cute enough, but it's dangerous. When these creatures feel the slightest bit threatened, what happens is they can fill their breasts, they can fill their elastic stomachs with huge amounts of water and perhaps air, and they actually appear much larger than they really are. They're kind of cute, but they contain this toxic substance that makes them foul-tasting and potentially deadly to other fish. In fact, they tell us that the toxin is 1,200 times as deadly than cyanide and that there's enough poison in that little creature in one puffer fish to kill 30 people. And when I see that, I, I think of pride. That sometimes it's possible that we puff ourselves up a little too much and we look bigger than we really are. And it's toxic to God. It's toxic to community. I love the story of the young man at the construction site always bragging about his own strength. He'd make fun of others smaller than he And in particular, there was one elder workman who wasn't able to lift as much, and he was always making fun, poking fun at that older man. The old-timer had had enough, and one day at the site, he challenged the young man. He said to him, why don't you put your money where your mouth is? I will bet you a week's wages that I can haul something in this wheelbarrow over to that building that you won't be able to wheel back. He said, you're on. And the old man grabbed the wheelbarrow and nodding to the young man said, okay, get in. (laughs) As it may or sometimes wisdom more strong than brawn. Wisdom is more important than, than muscle. Jim Collins, who wrote a book, Good to Great, some of you have read that book, but did you read his sequel, How the Mighty Fall? In that sequel, he talked about the reasons that great companies and institutions sometimes decline and fail mentioned five things, but the number one thing, you know what it was? The number one reason, hubris, excessive pride, sometimes born of success. And he wrote in that book that the X factor of good leadership is not personality, It's humility, humility. 
C.S. Lewis said, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can never see that which is above. That's the problem of pride. I, I think maybe that's why the Apostle Paul wrote to the Roman believers in chapter 12, friends, by the grace given to me, I say to all of you, don't, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Sober. He's using the language of addiction because sometimes the greatest addiction is my own ego. I don't know who said it, but it's right. Ego is a cardboard frame that humility needs to knock down every day. I remember Paul's counsel to Timothy. You remember that? One of the pastoral epistles, very personal word to his protege. In his second letter, chapter 3, he writes this, these words, in these last days, these distressing times will come and people will be lovers of themselves. Boastful, haughty, proud, ungrateful, unholy, allergic to God. Having the outward form of godliness without the power. Well, enough on the antithesis. What about the thesis? Just as foolishness and pride go together and the outcome is predictable, it's destruction. So also wisdom and humility go together and the outcome is also predictable. Blessing, fulfillment, honor. In fact, the word humility, you know what it means in the Hebrew? It means the exact opposite of pride. It's not to be high-minded. Humility means to be low-minded. Now, don't misunderstand. It's not about having poor self-esteem. In fact, it's not about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. Humility. It was Thomas Merton who lived up the road in Kentucky who said pride makes us artificial, but humility makes us real. I want to be real. <laughs> we want to be authentic. I think of humility. I think of Coach Tim Corbin. You know that name? Coach Corbin, Vanderbilt University, Vanderbilt baseball. Uh, we're always grateful during the fall for Vanderbilt baseball. I saw Coach Corbin a couple of weeks ago at a funeral, and I said, Coach, uh, you did pretty good this year. You made us proud. And you know what he said? He said, well, he never looked at me. He said, well, we had a good, good group of boys this season. And I thought, man, you just won a national championship twice in six years. Well, we had a good group of boys this year. That's humility. It's, it's low-minded. Bobby, as Lou Holtz used to say, if you score and get in the end zone, act like you've been there before. This is exactly what Jesus had in mind when he began his sermon on the mount with these words, blessed are the poor in spirit. The lowly. Those who recognize we haven't arrived 
We don't have it all together and we can't do it by ourselves. Life is not under my control. The poor in spirit don't have a big ego. They don't have a loud voice or a big stick. The poor in spirit are utterly dependent on God. Every beat of your heart, every breath that you take is a gift of God. Humility. And you know, here's the interesting thing. Jesus, Jesus doesn't just associate with the rich and the famous, but with the lowly. Jesus has friends in low places. In fact, his brother James said something like that in the little epistle by his name, chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And Jesus didn't just talk humility. That's what preachers do. That's what I talk too much. And we don't do enough. But Jesus lived it. In fact, I was looking through John 13 the other day, and I, I think the greatest act of humility short of the cross that I've ever seen was on a Thursday night when a Galilean teacher at a supper table took a tub and a towel and knelt down at the feet of his friends and washed their filthy feet. Nobody else would do it. <laughs> it was beneath the rest of them. It was beneath Peter and John. But Jesus took a towel. You remember Peter's response? I love this. Always impulsive, impetuous. Oh, no, he said, teacher, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, then you can't have any part of me. And then he said, well, give me a bath. Wash all of me. And Jesus said, what I've done for you, I want you to do for others. And it was his way of saying, there is no task too low for Jesus and his friends. How low can you go? I think of Paul in Philippi. He had some problems in Philippi. Preachers often do in churches. So he wrote them from a great distance. He didn't live in Philippi. He wrote them from a distance. Some of the leaders apparently in Philippi had gotten a little too hoity-toity. And it's one of those occasions where Paul actually mentioned their names. Uh, don't do that. That's not a good idea unless you live in another county. Euodia and Sintish, he said, some of you, listen to this, some of you have gotten a little too high-minded. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others before yourself. Look not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. And then he says this, have this lowly mindset in you that was in Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself in the form of a servant and became obedient even unto death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, most of us, if you're like me, I love a rags-to-riches story, don't you? Like somebody who had nothing and gained everything. 
But the gospel is an antithesis to that. It's not a, it's not a rags to riches. It's a riches to rags. This is one who had everything and became nothing for me and for you. But there's an elevation at the end. He who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be lifted up. The law of gravity says what goes up must come down. But the law of humility says what comes down will be lifted up. Let me give you one example, and I'm finished. A few years ago, when we were in Roswell, Georgia, before we went to to Lawrenceville, Jones, uh, I went on mission with a group from Honduras. When we got there, we got to Tegucigalpa. We took the long van ride, bus ride, to the village where we would minister and stay, and I thought it would be a good idea to have a worship service just with the team before we started the next day. I thought it would be a good idea to have a foot washing as a way of sort of symbolizing our mission with the people. And so we got together, we found a tub and some old cloths and some water, and there was a man on our team who was a doctor, but he wasn't a personal, he was a medical researcher. He was not a touchy-feely guy, kind of hard to get to know. And when the basin reached him after having his feet washed, he didn't move. He was supposed to continue the line to the next person, but he didn't. And I have to tell you, it was really awkward. He was visibly irritated, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to call attention to him, so I just had the benediction. And we went back to our bunks, and nobody said a word about it. We went about the week. We completed our work. There was a clinic that we were working on in a vacation Bible school. And at the end of the week, we were on our way back to the airport in Tagus. And we stopped at a little Mennonite village for lunch. And while we were eating, this little boy, seven, eight years old, walked in with an abscessed foot. He was hopping, and he was, he was in bad shape. And this researcher went over to him, and, and then they disappeared. I finished my meal, I finished eating, and I went out to the bus, and as I was headed out to the bus, I saw this man on his knees, and he was taking care of that boy. I I have no idea where he got it, but he had a bottle of disinfectant, and he was cleaning that wound, and then he applied the ointment, and he bandaged the sore, and we just watched, and then we got on the bus. He sat next to me and didn't say a word about 20 minutes. And then as though he had been thinking for a while, he said, Pastor, do you know what I was doing back there? And I said, what were you doing, Bill? He said, I was washing that boy's feet. I I guess now he said that the worship is complete. I said, I think it is. When I saw how low that man could go, I saw a glimpse of Jesus, and I knew that what comes down must go up. In a world that is dumbing down, 
The key to wising up is humility. And it's in asking the question, just how low will you go for Christ's sake?